0: Everybody gets a piece of... Today on the Alco's Mainstream podcast, we have a guest who may be young in age, but has already done more and lived through more than many people twice his age. Anthony Zhang recently turned 26, but has already successfully built and sold two companies, secured funding from Mark Cuban, and received a Teal Fellowship grant before starting VinoVest, his third company, which is making it easier to access fine wine as an investment product. He also has an admirable and awe-inspiring personal story. Working hard to come back from a devastating accident that left him paralyzed from the neck down. He was in the middle of running Envoy Now when this accident happened, and despite the tremendous adversity he faced, he was able to continue to build the business and achieve a successful sale. Anthony recently founded Vinovest, a platform that has been described as the Robin Hood of wine investing. He's built an investment platform that is unlocking wine investing to the masses. The wine asset class has largely been inaccessible to the individual investor due to high account minimums, a lack of wine expertise, concerns about fraud, and the excessive costs associated with storing and insuring wine. VinoVest is abstracting away many of these issues with their automated investment platform that helps investors invest into fine wine as an asset class. We had a fascinating conversation about Anthony's background, some of the lessons he's learned from starting three companies by the ripe old age of 26, how fine wine can be a compelling investment during periods of volatility, how to identify investment grade wine, and some of his favorite wines that he drinks and also invests into. Thanks, Anthony, for coming on the Alco's Mainstream Podcast. We hope you enjoy this episode. We're going mainstream.
1: Anthony, welcome to the Alco's Mainstream Podcast. Michael, it's a pleasure to be on board. Thanks for having me on.
0: Awesome, We're really excited to have you on. I think you've have an incredible background as an entrepreneur. You're only 26. You're on your third company now, so we'd love to hear your story and 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 share that with everyone.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I was born here in the states, but actually moved around a lot as a kid. Grew up mostly outside of the United States, spending some time in Beijing, Hong Kong, a few other places. Before I moved back here, mainly to, to go to college in the United States, and freshman year of college, when I was at USC, I started my first business, OnGo Now, and OnGo Now was a food delivery app for college campuses. And what really made that special was that we had only college students as our customers and only college students as our delivery people. So we were able to have. Just an extra layer of knowledge and friendliness and speed, where in a business like food delivery, the difference between a happy customer and a pissed off customer could be five minutes. I grew that business out. I actually dropped out of college to go pursue that full time, taking the Teal Fellowship to do that. A little bit under four years after founding that business, I was able to exit that successfully.
0: Congratulations. And, th- and then you started another business. You then worked at Blockfolio, I believe, as well. So you've had some experience in the investment space. So what were the other experiences that you've had prior to starting VinoVest?
1: The second business that I started was more as a passion project. It was called Know Your VC. Started in the beginning of 2017. And that was when the Harvey Weinstein news came out, Me Too movement. And a similar movement was going on in Silicon Valley, where a lot of brave entrepreneurs. Um, a lot of them who were female or were from minority backgrounds were coming out with these stories and how they were mistreated and you know discriminated against or even sexually harassed by VCs. And that just completely blindsided me because as an Asian male, I'd never had any of that experience, felt felt kind of deceived by a lot of the VCs that I talked to and even one of them I had on my cap table not really knowing what their true character was. And I wanted to create a little bit more transparency and accountability, for people in the venture ecosystem and started this platform, which is essentially like a Glassdoor or Yelp for rating investors.
0: That was before its time, in a sense. You're starting to see more of that now, and that's becoming really important. But that's a fascinating experience. And then you've gotten to to VinoVest, so from providing incredible consumer experience with Envoy Now to understanding and bringing transparency to an investment ecosystem. And both of those themes seem to be present in what you're now building at VinoVest.
1: Absolutely. With VinoVest... Wine is not a new asset class. It's been around since the start of time, but why has no one really heard about it, right? It's really something that you think someone's rich uncle invested in. It's not really available to the general public. And that's really what I thought, um, even when I first heard about it and uh, learned more about the return profile of it and was even really interested in trying it myself, it was very, very difficult as someone who was, you know, on the younger side with no connections in the wine industry, to be able to break in to invest in wine. So VinoVest is all about accessibility. It's all about bringing a really easy user experience to get people from the outside to get into this market.
0: Before we get to VinoVest, I do want to get to your incredible story of perseverance, given what's happened to you a few years ago. So mm-hmm. I'd love for people to just understand of a little bit about all the things that you've overcome to get to where you are today.
1: About five years ago, when I was still building point Now, I had a really serious accident. I... I dove into a pool, broke my neck, and uh, on impact, I became a quadriplegic. For those who don't know too much about it, it's a really serious injury that completely paralyzes you. From the neck down, spent the better part of the next year in the ICU, on a ventilator, really unable to move, breathe, do anything. Really had to relearn a lot of different things. Being still in a wheelchair today brings a lot of challenges to my life. That's why I'm really lucky to be able to I'll still have my brain one hundred percent, and uh, still be able to build the company, uh, especially in today's environment, which is a lot more remote friendly. I think it gives people who are like me, or people who um, need to spend a great deal of their day dealing with you know personal issues or health issues, or you know, it may even be emotional or mental issues, to still be able to contribute to you know, today's economy and the workforce.
0: Uh, it's an incredible story. I'm sorry to hear about what happened, but it seems like you've done nothing but made the best out of it. What What have some of those lessons learned from everything you've gone through? How has that impacted how you've built your companies in terms of going through the entrepreneurial journey?
1: I think that really taught me that everything can change in an instant. So why really waste time on things that you don't want to do or not hundred percent passionate in? So for example, with no UBC, I really had no plans to make that into a company. It was just something that I was talking with a couple of friends with, and we just were so fired up about it that I was like, we got to do something about it. And why wait for someone else to do something about it? And we had no plans to really make money or didn't make a business plan or look at the market sizing or any of that type of stuff that most business schools will probably should tell you to do before you start a business. We just wanted to see it out there. And it grew like crazy. We were you know, lucky enough to have it get acquired, but it really wasn't part of the plan. It wasn't part of the playbook. And same thing with Vest. Wine investing was just something that i had grown more and more interested in over the years. And I found myself spending a lot of time on it outside of work. And I'm like, well, if this is what I'm spending more and more of my time on, why don't I just make it my full-time thing? And that's really how it happened.
0: What was the spark that really got you interested in fine wine?
1: It was really, I think, an article that my fiance shared with me and she was like, hey, isn't this cool? Wine has actually done really well and was appreciating even even more than the s and these past few decades. And I was like, holy crap, this is insane. How is it actually an asset class? Why do some wines go up in value? Why do some wines stay flat? How can I get into it? And I just became obsessed. And the more I learned, the more I wanted to try it out for myself. And then just going through that user journey myself and realizing how antiquated and difficult it was to be able to... Not only know which wines to invest in, but even get access to them, even if you have the capital. And then dealing with the storage and all that stuff was was absolutely a nightmare, and I, I knew I could make it better.
0: So when you set out to build VinoVest, what was that market like in terms of wine as an investable asset class? Where did you go to find data on wine? Where did you go to understand which bottles or regions were the right ones to invest into? How you think about creating investment products around this? What, What was the state of the market when you started VinoVest?
1: So the good thing is that a lot of people are very, very passionate about wine. There are a lot of forums going to auctions, whether in person or online. Both were very, very educational and different experiences. Usually people who have large wine collections, whether it be for investment or enjoying or most likely a bit of both, they have personal brokers. I was working with a bunch of brokers and consultants and just really learning the tricks of the trade through them, through people who have been in the industry for a long, long time. And with gathering data, that that was tough. There's a lot of data out there, but it isn't really structured well for a novice or retail investor to be able to easily understand or even access. I realized I had to create a business to even get access to some of the, the data that the you know, wine investment professionals or wine distributors, or anyone who's moving wine in the world had access to.
0: You talk about certain people understanding that wine is an investable asset class. So walk us through wine as an asset class. What's the case for wine as an investable asset class? And how would you think about it in the context of other assets that you might compare wine
1: to? That's a great question, Michael. I think the case for wine as an asset class is A, it's, you know been around for decades or hundreds of years, and it's really not going away. In fact, luxury wine segment of the market, which is the market that we're targeting, is growing at around 5% a year. And we're seeing, especially with a lot of developing countries having a growing upper middle class, they're wanting to spend their money on wine and other nice alcohols. From a return profile standpoint, even if you don't like to drink wine or don't even like alcohol at all, it still is pretty compelling because it's had 10 to 12% annualized returns over the course of the last two, three decades. And perhaps even more Attractively is that it's very, very stable. It's very hard for the value of a bottle of wine to go down unless it's damaged or stored incorrectly. So you're really able to have an investment that um, is going to grow steadily as the wine ages over time. It's going to be able to protect your principal and is largely uncorrelated with the stock market in general. So in terms of looking at wine holistically in someone's portfolio, Definitely in that safer diversification sort of standpoint, along the lines of real estate.
0: Where are investors bucketing this in their portfolio? Are they bucketing this in the alternatives part of their portfolio? Are they thinking of it as a fixed income replacement or supplement? Are they taking it out of equities? You mentioned that it's obviously uncorrelated. You mentioned that it's relatively stable returns. It has some similarities to real estate. But as you speak to your investors or or understand how they think about things, how, how do they think about this in terms of portfolio construction?
1: I think a lot of them are taking it out of some of their fixed income opportunities, taking it out of cash, for example, since they're really not earning anything in the bank account, or even some where they're realizing that they're in some riskier place. Maybe it's angel investing, maybe it's crypto, and they realize that they do need something a little bit more on the safer side to be able to counter the volatility that they have in other assets in their portfolio.
0: As you think about the evolution and maturation of this asset class, how do people end up getting liquid on these investments? Walk us through the the life cycle of a trade or an investment. They find the assets, then they're investing in these assets. Where do they store them? How do they know the value of them and the value over time? And how do they exit some of these investments?
1: That's a great question. Would be no best we really handle everything from start to finish? So you come in as a wine investor you say you want to throw five thousand dollars into the test now we first determine with that five thousand dollars how long are you looking to hold it for we're going to be buying different assets if you're looking to hold it for 20 years versus five years for example secondly what's your risk appetite if you're looking to really go aggressive or if you're looking to have this be a little bit more conservative and you know, when you're thinking about the rest of the portfolio based on that we'll buy you some wines we then go source them We authenticate them and then we move them into our storage facilities. The end customer does not need to deal with any of the logistics. We also fully insure them in temperature controlled, climate controlled facilities so that they are in the perfect condition as if we just found them. When it comes to monitoring it, we are pulling actual trade data and sale data from multiple sources all around the world to be able to give the user essentially their mark to market. Wine is much less liquid than stocks, but There's still a lot of trading activity going around. We don't care if someone is buying it for investment or buying it for consumption. That's still a data point that we can use that is actual historical data. Uh, Finally, when it comes to the sale, a lot of times we'll be selling on to maybe a wine retailer or a restaurant or a distributor that wants to move into another country, for example. So I think the interesting thing is that there's real utility in wine. There's real consumption in wine. And uh, a big reason why... We did not structure the retail investment platform as a security, for example, is because we want to be able to increase our liquidity options and our liquidity options are much greater when, say, you just buy and sell a case of wine. It's much more straightforward than buying and selling shares of a wine, for example.
0: How does the scarcity value of the wine come into play? Because I think there's one interesting feature of the wine asset class is that there's probably only going to be a certain number of bottles made in a certain region at a certain vintage. But certainly people can buy some of those wines and drink them. H- how do you think about that from an investment perspective? Because I'd imagine like the more scarce that resource becomes, the more valuable it becomes in some cases. Yeah,
1: you're absolutely right. You know, if, Say that if there's only a thousand bottles in existence and you drink 10 of them, you're inherently making the rest of the bottles more scarce because that that wine can never be produced again from that particular vintage, and that supply is going down. So scarcity is absolutely a factor that we look for, um, especially when it comes to secondary market performance. And it is very, very true that the rarer wines are going to be the ones that have higher return profiles.
0: On that point then, how does the market know when somebody has – ended up buying a bottle of wine, and then even further ended up drinking a bottle of wine, I'd imagine there's a lot of private sales as well. So how does the market understand and capture all of that activity and information so that as an investor, you're then able to get the best possible information and sourcing on that?
1: You're totally right on that. That's a very, very difficult thing because you can still see the, the sale data that we're capturing, but we have no idea if this person is storing it maybe gifting it to a friend. So maybe another data point that we might not know about, or maybe they're just enjoying it. So for us, um, we do our best to be able to estimate and model that out in terms of what that decrease in supply looks like over time based on our historical data. But there's always going to be variances and especially even bottle to bottle, there could be a variance in price exactly to your point on depending on where they sorted, it, how they stored it, who the person is. So if it's me living in my apartment in Culver City and I have a bottle in my closet, it's a very, very different sort of price point if we're getting it directly from that winery and it's the exact same bottle maybe they held back with few for their, you know, for a special occasion. So those are all some, I think interesting nuances for investors to be aware of in, in you know when they're investing.
0: How does diligence work in that regard? I imagine diligence becomes a really important part of this in terms of understanding price discovery and understanding, particularly if you're managing these portfolios for your investors, when you end up thinking about pricing these or marking them to, quote unquote, marking them to market, and then potentially getting liquidity on them. So how do you think about the diligence function in a market like this? And and how do you aim to do diligence in this
1: space? That's a really good point, because with any sort of uh, luxury asset class, There's fraud. Whenever there's something where there's not enough produced and more people want it, people are going to be making fakes. And that has definitely been an issue that's plagued the wine industry, most luxury industries as well. And we take a very stringent approach to it. We don't buy any wines that come from private collections, no matter what the price is or no matter what they say. We only buy direct from the winery or from another wine professional that is only sorted in what we call a bonded professional warehouse. So with that, we're essentially taking the creme de la creme of wine when it comes to storage and we're able to trace back the origin and the provenance back to directly the winery. So we don't want to take any risks when it comes to the acquisition of the wine. Uh, We want to only work with wine that we are 100% sure is authentic and is in the best condition. You mentioned
0: the wineries, and and I'd imagine that they are excited about the fact that there's firms that only want to work with the sources directly, because that probably keeps the asset class more pure, pun intended. How do the wineries feel about this kind of development within the asset class of what you're doing to democratize the asset class, open it up as an investable product, and enabling people to invest in it, maybe not just buy directly from the winery? So how does that whole dynamic work in this industry?
1: There are definitely two camps there. Wine is meant to be enjoyed and consumed. And there are quite a few purists that are like, we don't want to make it into a money thing. They want it to be enjoyed. Then again, they're the ones that are releasing the wine at higher and higher prices each year. So I think it is an unavoidable part of the industry where there are winemakers who most of them consider themselves a bit of an artist. And then there's the money part of the actual sale. And knowing that wine is also something that has... Many decades after its release for it to appreciate, for the wine to change its profile, for it to age, those are all things that I think build in really, really well for the case of a global secondary market for wine.
0: Does creating this as an investable asset class and the transparency and data that's coming with it, is that creating better price discovery for the consumers in terms of what wineries have to keep themselves honest and price certain things at at certain prices rather than control the market in terms of how they might price things?
1: I think the the biggest beneficiaries of this movement is going to be the consumer because I'm sure you've been in the experience where you order a bottle of wine at a restaurant and it's completely different price than what you see online or even at another restaurant. There's really no price transparency. And I think what this will do is enable better price discovery for consumers, whether they're purchasing it to drink or purchasing it to hold.
0: In terms of the way Vinovest is structured, you've gone the route of building curated investment portfolios for wine investors as an outsider looking in and for simplification. And correct me if this simplification is wrong, but this feels like a wealth front or betterment for the wine industry where you're giving investors the ability to access an automated investing portfolio, but for wine rather than equities. So why did you go the route of structuring particularly something that is is in some respects a passion asset that people are interested in and has some level of interest. It's not just a dispassionate money-making investment. Why did you go the route of creating these curated investment portfolios rather than let people necessarily pick single assets and and make it more of a marketplace where people can just buy and transact on these assets themselves?
1: I think it really comes down to accessibility. If I gave um, someone who even likes to drink wine a selection of 50 wines to invest in they would have no idea or they would be clouded by what they like to drink versus what will actually make them money and even for i think the 99 percent of people who are on our platform who never even knew wine investment existed the sort of wealth run automated model i think works a lot better in terms of making sure that people are actually having a good experience and i think with a lot of these marketplaces the professional traders or the people who are really passionate, they love it. But for 99% of novice traders, they're in the dark and blindly guessing or speculating, which is not a bad thing, but I don't think it's the most responsible thing to do when you're opening up a new asset class to so many people.
0: So then walk us through how the platform works. You have both consumers, and then you have intermediaries, so wealth managers, many of whom actually listen to this podcast, um, who are able to access this on behalf of their clients. Walk us through how the platform works for both consumers and individuals, as well as intermediaries, like financial
1: advisors. So for consumers, uh, it's very similar to a Wealthfront experience. So they they log into the platform, they go through an assessment quiz to really determine what they're looking to get out of it financially. So those investment timeline questions, risk tolerance questions, budget questions, asset allocation questions. And based on those uh, preferences, our algorithm will then actually come up with uh, wine recommendations and we'll just deploy their capital for them. We then buy those wines, we store them, and then the user gets to see and track their portfolio online dashboard. For intermediaries, they're able to then help their clients deploy capital And find, I think, alternative sources of yield. And we work with them to be able to have the right reporting, the right presentations to educate both themselves as well as their end clients on this, not new, but previously hard to access asset class. And we work with them pretty closely on a tailored basis.
0: And on the advisor side, is it generally interest that's bubbling up from the surface from the advisor's clients saying, hey, I want access to alternatives. I want access to wine as an asset class. I've read something about it, or I'm passionate about this space. Help me understand how I can invest in it. Or is it advisors coming to you and saying, how do we diversify our client portfolios? Here's a way we can do it. Can you help us do this for our clients?
1: It is more so the latter. I think a lot of advisors, they're uh, looking to be forward-thinking and really push the boundaries. And They usually test it out themselves, kind of be the guinea pig. And then after a while, when they feel more comfortable, they're like, all right, well, I know a few clients who who would really love this. Maybe they love wine, or maybe they're just looking for an alternative. And then the conversation evolves. All right, how can I put this into their portfolios? um, And how do I structure this?
0: Interesting. Interesting. That's fascinating. That's really exciting to hear in terms of the evolution of this asset class. One thing that I think we've seen in certain parts of the alt world is the arc of institutionalization in certain areas of more alt-alt assets or more esoteric alternative assets that like the creation of platforms like yourself are actually making them more mainstream, that they will undergo this arc of institutionalization. So it's interesting to hear that you already have the advisor channel. It's not just a consumer-driven investment decision. It's it's actually people who are fiduciaries who want to allocate assets on behalf of clients.
1: Yeah, we target them as well. So they come in and I think it's really great that a lot of them are open-minded to be able to think about all right not just a 60 40 anymore there's so many new alternatives and i don't think anyone wants to be that late on something that could be not the next crypto but could be just as i think attractive to add to someone's portfolio
0: I think that's absolutely right. So if we get into the nuts and bolts of the platform, so breaking down the aspects of the Alts platform, simplifying it a a little bit, but for for the sake of time on the podcast, into four distinct areas. So there's sourcing, there's diligence, there's distribution, and then liquidity. How do you think about each of those four things? Let's start with sourcing. How do you think about sourcing assets and and where do you source from?
1: Sourcing assets, direct from wineries, direct from wine professionals. And especially with wine, knowing the origin, knowing the source, the provenance is so important. We make that really, really clear. And because of that, we're, you know, turning away most of the wine that's being offered to us. You know, some guys like, hey, I got a great seller of wine, you should buy some. But even though some of those names and years are ones that we would invest in, we want to protect the customers. So we, we actually turn those away.
0: Interesting. So that gets us to the diligence side. How do you know what types of wines or regions you'd like to buy from or wineries you'd like to buy from? And then what type of diligence do you end up doing to determine what assets should end up in
1: clients' portfolios? So there's a number of factors that we do take into account. We take into account things like historical performance, things like secondary market data points, scarcity, as we mentioned before, critic scores, social media sentiment, even for newer vintages to work with satellite data companies to be able to predict Um, how that wine's going to turn out. And then also there's some more intangibles like brand equity as well and and popularity of certain regions and and the trends that we're seeing from the consumer side as well.
0: On on that point, how do you think about the impact of climate change on how it's impacting different regions that are producing wine and the vintages that'll come out of it? And and does that factor into your investment diligence
1: process at all? It, It absolutely is. We've seen just in the last decade a region like burgundy that already has really really rare and low yields the average yield has actually gone down by double digits in the last decade and a lot of that is because of increasingly hot summers which means that the grapes are ripening sooner and what that means if they're ripening sooner is that um, they're really smaller yields so they're actually forced to have even lower supply than before while global demand is getting higher and higher so it's definitely propping up prices in a lot of these key regions, Bordeaux, Burgundy, Napa. But then on the flip side, a lot of regions that were previously too cold to produce wine are starting to really come into vogue. So Oregon is very, very up and coming. Some parts of New Zealand, even Germany, a country that people only associate with white grapes like Riesling, they're starting to produce really, really amazing red wines as well. So it's also exciting when we're looking for more so up and coming regions that uh, Mm -hmm. that climate change has started to help prop up.
0: That's fascinating. It sounds like being able to do that diligence and really understand that will help then inform your investment decisions. That brings us to the distribution side. We talked a little bit about this with individuals and then wealth managers as well, but how do you think about your investor base and, and distribute the product? And what kind of education has to go into this, given that it may be a different type of asset than what some people are traditionally used to understanding?
1: I think education is absolutely key, both for individual investors and for intermediaries because wine in itself is confusing and intimidating to most people. They don't know all these French names or all these grape varietals and what's the difference between vintages. So we really do focus a lot of our marketing efforts on just educating the investor. In our platform, we produce content and try to talk about it like a stock analyst would talk about a stock why is the 2018 Opus one going up versus the 2016 Opus one? What are the key differences between things like that? And then also talking about larger regional trends that we've talked about. We really uh, try to make sure that everyone is comfortable with what they're investing in and actually knows what they're investing in because wine should be and can be more interesting as a investment topic than maybe most traditional asset classes.
0: On that point, how do you think this market financializes? And what's some of the key missing ingredients right now with this asset class that you see needing to come into existence in order for this asset class to start to financialize even more, to your point? like The way a stock analyst would talk about uh, a specific stock, or maybe there's certain market data that's required. What's that missing ingredient or missing ingredients that are required to make this a truly financialized asset?
1: I think it really is going to be that access to data. That's something that we encountered on day one, realizing that, all right, there is really no good centralized place for anyone to be like, all right, this is the price of this bottle of wine. But we realized the more transactions that we're making through our platform, the more and more users can look to us as that source of actual system of record. And that's really our goal of being is to become that in, in the wine
0: industry. You mentioned liquidity. I think that's probably something that's on investors' minds when they're thinking about investing into this asset class or investing into the products on your platform. How do investors think about liquidity in this asset class, and how do you provide liquidity mechanisms for them?
1: This is definitely a long-term asset class. It just takes time for that wine to age and for consumption to do its thing to make the wine more scarce. Um, So we definitely want to set the expectation in liquidity that it is going to be something that you want to hold for at least five years to be able to get the return profile that the asset class can offer. But if people say they're a year in and then say they have a baby or lose their job or something unexpected, we can give them liquidity in a matter of days now. The good thing is we have a very large user base now um, that we can even uh, transact within the platform. But even more helpful, especially in the early days for us, was that we can just sell this wine off to any person in the wine world, whether it be a retailer, an auction house, another wine asset manager. Um, These are all wines that we have curated, that we know have demand on the secondary market, and we can be able to find a buyer.
0: And then on that point as well, this is an interesting asset class in the sense that in most cases, I would imagine, the longer somebody holds... The better it is for the value of their wine. How do you think about things as they start to get longer in the tooth? In venture, we've seen the maturation of private markets become to the point where it's the value is really being created in private markets. And then when there is a liquidity mechanism, which has generally been an IPO the majority of that value is captured in private markets. So it's in the both companies and investors benefits to stay private for a longer period of time, because that's where the massive jumps in multiples and and valuations end up happening. Is that similar in the wine asset class as well? If you were to hold for 20 years versus 10 years, you might end up with a significantly different return than if you were to sell at 10 years.
1: I think that is right. But I think the Key distinction between that and the venture comparison is that uh, wine still has a shelf life. There is gonna be a time where that wine goes bad. Um, it's not an immediate date, like milk, for example, you leave it out for a couple days, it's completely bad. With wine, even though it's still in the bottle and say a year past its recommended drinking date, it'll still be good if it's more of a slow sort of taper off. I think a lot of people, when they're looking at different wines that have different aging profiles, they can see if this is a 10 year hold versus a 20 year hold versus a 30 year hold.
0: And then on all of these points, talking about the different pieces of this platform and the evolution and the market structure of this asset class, what in your mind is it going to take for wine investing to become the domain of institutional investors? As an extreme example, what would it take for a Fidelity or BlackRock to offer a wine ETF or a wine investing product to the the individual investors or, or to make this truly an asset class for institutions to either invest in themselves or offer to their large customer bases?
1: That's a great question. Looking at other asset classes, I think it really is going to be a lot of trust and security in the people that are going to be providing that service. So at BinoVest, we want to be able to be really, really transparent to investors, no matter what size, on exactly what they're getting themselves into. And I think for Fidelity or BlackRock to have comfort in that is they need to know that, you know, A, there's a real asset backing it. This asset is in good condition. We're able to actually get updated mark to market. These are all things that they're looking for when they're going through their diligence process to see if they want to offer it through their platform. Those are all things that we're building to want to be at that institutional grade so that when they're ready or when the market's ready, it's something that we can be able to step up to the plate and offer.
0: It'll be exciting to see the evolution of this asset class over time, I think, because it has some of the elements where it seems like that can actually happen. I actually want to do something a little different than what I've done in other cases, but there's so much interesting aspects of wine. So I'm going to ask you just a few quick questions on rapid fire answers on different types of wine that you like, uh, what the different kind of vintages are, et cetera. Let's start with, with a simple one, red or white. Right. Okay. okay, Bordeaux, Burgundy, or Napa?
1: Ooh, I would say at the moment, Bordeaux. Why? It's really the first wine where I had that sort of, not life changing experience. That's a little bit, I think, of an exaggeration, but a night where I definitely, definitely remembered. I'm like, this is what really great wine is. And that was my first sort of like foray into you know, wanting to invest in wine. What's the best vintage year? I would say it really depends on the region, but I really like Champagne. My birth year is 1995, and all of the Champagnes I've had that are 1995 have been amazing.
0: What's the best
1: up-and-coming region? I I would keep my eye on Oregon. A lot of Burgundy wine producers have started buying up land in Oregon because from um, a longitude-latitude level, they're actually on the same plane as Burgundy, France, and share a lot of the same climate conditions. I think that is definitely an up-and-coming region to watch.
0: What's the best bottle that you've ever
1: drank? Wow, that's a great one. I would say the night where I uh, post my fiance, we had a bottle of 1995 Dom Perignon, and uh, it was was so special. So I would say that's my best and most favorite bottle to date.
0: So that's the one you drank. What's the best bottle you've ever invested in?
1: I would say my best investment is going to be a bottle of 2002 krug and it's from their ampunet vineyard which is a really really small single vineyard that they have and it's made of 100 percent pinot noir which you don't particularly find in champagne Um, that bottle is extremely rare small production and can age for many many decades and that is my strongest investment today
0: what's your favorite vineyard you've ever been to
1: Oh, that's a good one. I, I visited Chateau Mouton Rothschild in Bordeaux. And I think the really, really cool thing they do is that they commission an artist every single year to do their label artwork. So they've had Picasso, they've had Andy Warhol, they've had some of the most incredible artists in the world. And it gives uh, a lot of excitement whenever the bottle is going to be released because people want to know who's the artist. And that's almost like an early influencer collab is really interesting and cool. And it was really awesome to see it throughout the years, you know, back 50, 60 years, every single artist, you know, the original paintings are, are there too in the vineyard.
0: Oh, That's fascinating. That's really the, the, the collision of culture with finance and the financialization of this asset class, which is kind of cool. But what are the best words of wisdom you've ever received from one of the, sommeliers or people who run a winery that that you've ever received as you've been building this business?
1: Oh, wow. I've been really, really fortunate to get to meet and run into some amazing uh, songs, amazing wine directors and, and winemakers. But I think really the best thing that they've told me is this is really meant to be enjoyable. Wine is something that people do to enjoy themselves, to connect with other people. And that's something that I never really want to lose sight of because at the end of the day, this is meant to connect people over shared experiences. And to me, that's the best thing about being able to work in an industry that straddles something so passionate and something very much so on the nutter side as well.
0: That's a great note to end this podcast on. This truly encapsulates both sides of things, the passion that people have for something that they care about, like, and even will go to lengths of drinking, while also realizing that this is a financialized and and increasingly so financialized asset class with real investment returns and a reason why this should sit in people's portfolio. So, Anthony, thanks so much for coming on the Alt Goes Mainstream podcast. It was great having you. Yeah,
1: pleasure, Michael. Really enjoyed it as well.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Alt Goes Mainstream. I hope you enjoyed it. You can find more episodes of the podcast at any of your favorite podcast sites, and you can read more about alts at my substack, .substack altgoesmainstream.substack.com. And follow me on Twitter at at Michael Stidgemore and at Gozalt. Thanks a lot and have a great day. We're going-